You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Anna O'Donohue. Anna is an incredible actor whose work I've admired so much over the years. She was in the class two years ahead of me at Juilliard, and I've always just loved her energy and the enthusiastic support she gives to her fellow artists. We talk about all sorts of things in this conversation, but we also mention a little bit about the fact that I'm pregnant. Frankie and I finally shared the news on social media, so I figured I could go ahead and tell you guys too. Longtime listeners will know that we've wanted to grow our family for a while now, so we're really excited about this kid. I'm due at the end of August, so I'm sure I'll tell you more about it as it goes along and how it's affecting uh, my creative life. And with that, I hope you enjoy the 116th episode of The Compass. How do you keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Wait, I've listened to this podcast so many times. That's literally the first thing you say to people. <laughs> How do you? I you actually don't even know. go like hello. Say, <laughs> how do you try to keep from going to oh, the dark okay. side yeah. as an artist? That is a really important, um, different phrasing. No, but we usually have this whole conversation beforehand, <laughs> like we just did. <laughs> Great, edit it. Will I don't, um, I don't let them in the door and just say that. Cheese, Louise. Um, well, as many times as I've heard that, and even though I knew it was coming, I was just surprised. <laughs> I think the answer is I I don't. I am a pretty dark person. Like I grew up obsessed with like the Holocaust. I, I had a really intense fixation on Adolf Eichmann when I was like nine. I read the entirety of Stephen King's oeuvre by I was obsessed with uh Satanism and the Antichrist. I yeah, I I I, I am dark kind of in my You're intrigued by that. Yeah, and um drawn to it and I think it is a part of me. I think that I think the dark side, nihilism, um decay, destruction cruelty like all of those things I think are really part of us as humans and it's important and interesting to get interested in them what what do you think of for yourself when I say the dark side as an artist like Um, what what does that mean to you what it means well I think what my translation of that would be is what is this is so reductive and like small but unuseful um yeah that makes sense and for me 
getting really dark can be actually really invigorating and inspiring. Um, I think it's a thing I have to contribute. What is unuseful is, there's a, a bunch of different versions of it, but the like triangle or probably stasis, paralysis, just a sense of, a sense of stuck. Why bother? You know, hmm. Um, and shame mm -hmm. and um, like deep paranoia. And, and then this is connected to that, but it's separate. A, a sort of like very Calvinist, like binary, magical thinking feeling that um, there is a caste system of human beings as artists and special, and you kind of either have it or you don't, mm. and that other people are over there being like magical and interesting and important and look at them and that I'm not in the category so just like why even bother right I can feel that way sometimes yeah and I think <laughs> that even like the most special whatever like that's a terrible construct like as if specialness can be on a on a gradation or a scale which it yeah. can't but it, it it can really feel that way right and I'm sure everyone who in that moment you feel that way about feels that way about someone else absolutely and I have so many unbelievably special people in my life who don't experience that for themselves and it's so easy to reflect to them and be like you're amazing it's the phenomenon of the girl who's like I'm not pretty and you're like Jesus Christ shut up <laughs> but it feels really real when you're yeah, in it it totally does um, yeah. So what are some of the ways that you try to combat those useless feelings? I try to get sort of practical about it and go like, well, there's a couple of things. Um, a, what if you're right? Maybe you're right. Like, maybe that's true. You can't fix it. You can't change it. What are you going to do? You know, like you must proceed anyway. Um, so I try to kind of like lean into the potential veracity of it and then spin from there. Right. Kind of take the power out of it that way. Yeah. And kind of go like, well, it's true. We are all going to die. I mean, <laughs> you know, like if you wake up in the morning and go like, oh no, the world will cease to exist in 8 billion years. Yes. Correct. Like, <laughs> but you can still draw a picture, you know? Like, right. And you can still make still some really great grocery tea. shopping today. Totally. <laughs> Um, so I do that mm -hmm. and then I also just think about all of the incredible people that I know that grapple with the same the same paralysis and, and evil feelings and I know how wrong they are and I go well I could be right even though they're wrong I could be right but they're so wrong and I too could be wrong and feelings are not facts and um, I I try to just, it can be sort of like a, an evil wheel that you get on. And so I try to step off of it. But more and more, I'm trying to just name it and be like, well, I'm doing that thing. Cool. What if I do something else? Right. Yeah. You're, if you're able to recognize that you're doing it. Yeah. That's a huge thing. And, and it's, I, I feel like most artists are able to recognize it if they're, if they've gone through the, 
especially like the type of training that we went through at Juilliard where you're like, you're aware of your habits. <laughs> if nothing else, yes. you realize through Alexander and stuff, you realize how to point out your own habits. And I think that that applies a little bit to these like mental habits. Totally. I mean, a lot of thought is just habit. It's yeah. like the A to B to C to yeah. D to And if you can go like, it's strange that I'm constantly connecting A to J when not necessarily like maybe let's just take a back to b and maybe eventually it'll get to j but so yeah recognition is big um and then it's it's just about trying to make another choice you know in alexander language it's what is it disinhibiting (laughs) but i do find physical things really helpful actually yeah yeah, I've, I found Alexander Technique to be that and IPA to be like, <laughs> people are like, what did you learn in college? And I'm like, well, I learned how to code um, sounds and I learned how to lie on the floor <laughs> and breathe. And like after that, I really couldn't tell you. Um, but Alexander Technique, I think, is an amazing system. Yeah, I've been like hungry to like get back into it recently. It's so helpful. I have a hard time self-practicing, but I have found a a friend who just got certified recently-ish, who's offering group classes for actors, and they're amazing, and I recommend them completely. Well, you should give me the information. I will. (laughs) I will give it to anyone. Um, And you grew up in New York, correct? I did. How is it for you being an adult still living in the same city where you grew up? Oh, that's such a great question. It's, um, I'm fascinated because so many of us moved here from afar. Well, I know. I mean, I'm so jealous of that experience of getting to like come to New York, right, you as know? An yeah, and to like basically have it be kind of a coming out party. Like it's an identity assumption. It's it's a uh, a rite of passage. It's a new chapter. Whereas for me, like sometimes I get off the subway and I'm like, cool, I've been getting off of the same stop since I was 11 years old. (laughs) Progress. It's great. New York is actually a great place to be a kid, but I do wonder if there is some essential like self-realization that I'm missing by not living somewhere else. Mm. I don't know, but I can't drive, so (laughs) you can't go anywhere else. Um, And did you go to Juilliard as undergrad? Yes, yes, you did. Yep, that's what I, so learned in college, IPA and lying on the floor, no other education, deeply, deeply uneducated and stupid. (laughs) Stop it. Um, And what do your parents make of you choosing to be an artist for your career? I'm going with all the tough questions first. I know, I love it. Um, <laughs> that, a, I'm laying a foundation. It's great, background. it's great. I love it. This is my favorite. <laughs> the, the darkness of me is like, just like, let's lay it all out there. Let's make it as like cruel and tough and hard as we possibly can. <laughs> it's not my intention. No, it's great. Um, that's been a real trajectory that I think we're still on. Um, my parents... Because they still live in New York as well. Yeah, they so it's do. Like an interesting, yeah, an interesting constant. And they and my parents are not artists, like even a tiny bit. And I'm deeply jealous of people whose parents are, because I think a lot of, a lot of that caste system, like insecurity that I have, 
comes from feeling like, oh, this is another universe that I have to cross into. This isn't a thing people really do. Mm-hmm. This is this is the people I've sat in the audience and watched on the stage. They're special. They're different. Like, right, you didn't know anyone personally. No. And I think it's interesting that so many celebrities and movie stars have kids who grew up, who grew up to be in the business. And I don't think it's just nepotism. I think it's that they grow up thinking like, this is a viable, like I deserve to right. be here. Right. This is what my dad does. This is what my mom does. Like, and they make a living at it. Yeah. And this is life. Like yourself and your life and your artistry and your creativity are essential and are all part of like being an adult. And I just did not have that. But my parents really love theater and love the arts and grew up, and I grew up getting to getting to see an incredible amount of stuff. Um, and my best friend's mother, uh, bizarrely, was the head theater critic for the Village Voice growing <laughs> up. Um, which was a totally, this is a dis- discursive thing, but that knowledge helped me get a really, really healthy um, cynicism and uh, kind of understanding of the bones of theater criticism because she she's a wonderful person. She's a great writer. She had no background in theater. The way huh. that she got started in criticism, the voice was like, one day she went to see a play and she like had some thoughts about it. She wrote them down and she sent them to the head of the paper and the paper and the guy was like, hey, do you want to be a critic? And she was like, I don't really know what I'm doing. He was like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and then she ended up being a professional theater critic for like decades. That's incredible. And I think that's true for so many people. So anytime anyone gets hung up over a review, myself included, I just have to go like, hold on, hold on. One person's opinion. It's one person's opinion who like may or may not just have moved up the restaurant beat, you know? Anyway. um, Did you get to see a bunch of like downtown theater because of that? Totally, totally. And like there was one summer when I was in high school where my friend's mom's protege who now is a critic for the times and it's just so trippy was covering the fringe and she was like I need someone to go with me so I went to probably dozens of fringe shows that summer and like hung out with her and she's she's maybe nine years older than me but at the time that's yeah cavernous um so I saw a lot of stuff growing up but I don't think it ever occurred to my parents that I would actually be an artist it didn't really occur to me either I um, I applied to half conservatories and half liberal arts schools when I was going to college, and I think everyone assumed I would get into the liberal arts colleges, even though I had a very spotty academic record, and because <laughs> I sort of didn't go to calculus for a year. And I don't blame you. <laughs> calculus is so hard. I was home educated, so I have a very spotty education as well. They wouldn't let, it was like I was we in the highest. We decided to focus on certain things and not on others. I kept being like, I'm not good at math. I don't like this. Take me out of this class. And they were like, you're not applying yourself. And I'd be like, true. That is absolutely correct. But and I don't I will want never. Never. <laughs> oh, awful. But, um... I got into all the liberal art. I got into all the conservatories, and I didn't. I got like waitlisted at <laughs> the liberal arts schools, and that was really surprising to hmm. all of us. And we're like, hmm. yeah. Well, I mean, I, my my Juilliard edition was. Um, I was I was doing a school performance. Do you know the, Do you know the play Extremities? 
Who's it by? It's it's by William Master Simone. It's no. a, it's a terrible play. It's about like Farrah Fawcett stars in the movie. I think Susan Sarandon did it on Broadway. But it's about a woman who's like about to get raped in her house by like a Latino guy who breaks in, and then she gets away from him and chains him in the fireplace and starts like abusing him. Oh my goodness. And yeah, it's amazing. And her roommates come home and like don't believe her. So it's a play from the 70s about, you know, rape culture, I guess. But it's deeply offensive and like and you very were doing it in high school. I did it. I was doing I was playing the rape the semi almost rape victim in high school and uh, we had a performance on this day and I got my Juilliard audition date in the mail and they were like be ready to stay all day if you're called back and I was like oh I have a show that night well whatever I'm not gonna get called back it doesn't matter and I I I remember seeing the callback list and being like I have to go (laughs) so I like made them move me to the to the top of the pile and like go for it It was the whole thing was just (laughs) completely random um so yeah uh and then my parents were like what's happening uh and I think they still like at every family conversation they their favorite thing to do is be like you know what you know what you'd be great at Oh my goodness. You know what you should go to grad school for? <laughs> Just in case you need some ideas. They um, love it. But they 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 have really like come around to trying really hard to be support. I think they've kind of gotten into their heads that I'm I'm not going to change my mind. Good. So, but then they, it's nice because you live in the same city, they get to see you in a lot of things. Yeah. Since you've gotten to do a lot of shows in the city. I have. And I sometimes I'm like, you really shouldn't come to this one, guys. <laughs> like, um, there was one where I was like, I'm going to play a sex fairy and a play about, like, pornography. Please don't come. <laughs> like, please don't. Um, but they're incredibly sweet. And they, they go out of town to everything that I do. That's I think they really like... Lovely. Yeah, I think they like getting the little excuse to, like... What are we? Oh, we're in Maine. We're touring the country, watching our daughter do plays. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're incredible in that way. Um, you've done a ton of work with new plays. I have. I observe. <laughs> it's my over, favorite over the course of your career. Can we talk a little bit of, about how that's come about and how you approach your work with, um, like, when the playwright is in the room and when you're working yeah. on your work. Yeah, um, new plays are my favorite thing. When I was at school, the playwrights program at Juilliard, which is so incredible now, was not nearly as integrated into the like mainstay of the curriculum. Yeah, I remember when I came to visit, I went to a reading and it was... No one was Jim, there. Jim Houghton really made it a thing when he arrived. Yeah, and God bless him. I mean, the readings used to all be on Saturdays, and it was or Sundays or whatever everyone's one day off was. Right. <laughs> so like, what what not nonsense is this? And I went to all of them, and I would like go up into the office and take big stacks of plays. I just um, I fell in love with acting by because of story, and because of participation in story, and I just really. I love plays like a big geek and um, it was really exciting to me to get to read these pieces and then be like, oh my God, you wrote that? Because I'd spent my 
childhood reading, reading, reading and having the people who wrote be these remote figures. And so getting to kind of flesh and blood it up with them was really cool to me. Um, and I found, I have found that most, most of my best friends and closest collaborators are writers. Hmm. Um, and there's something about being able to kind of be part of the stew as something is becoming itself. There are a lot of people that I met as an actor and still collaborate with, but even if I'm not in a play, even if I'm, there's no chance of me being in it, I'll, they'll still send me their script and we'll still like work pretty intensely um, on it and about it. And I've just done so much new play development that I feel like I have a sense of kind of bones of, what work wants to be. I think that my, I'm not really a creator. I'm an editor. Hmm. So I was going to ask, do you write it all yourself? I do. I mean, most of my, like, I feel like I'm, I've been resisting writing my entire life. I mean, talking about my parents, their relationship to my artistry, they have been obsessed with the idea. Like all they want is for me to go to grad school, to be a writer. And I'm like, guys, don't you realize that's not a better idea? (laughs) But um, when I was at Juilliard, I wrote a lot of articles for the Juilliard Journal Mm -hmm. because it was the best paying work study job. You got paid like $150 per article, which was (laughs) so much better than working at the Juilliard Cafe making grilled cheese sandwiches, which I also did. Um, And then they gave me, at some point, the Juilliard Journal Award. Oh my goodness. It was very exciting. Um, I didn't even know it existed. They like called me into the office and I was like, oh no, I'm late on a deadline. And they gave me the certificate and a check. And I don't think, I honestly don't think my parents have ever been prouder of anything (laughs) in my life. But yeah, I've written since I was a kid and it's how I've made a lot of my money. But unless I'm writing for someone else or for a, a very specific purpose, I kind of don't care enough to. It's much easier for me to get invested and, um, kind of to put my heart into something if it's someone else's idea that's I mean it makes sense because actors are usually interpretive artists yeah yeah Um, I mean a lot of people do a lot of different things all at once but um I feel yeah I feel that I am the best I am my best self when I feel very clear on what my job is and what I feel like I'm being of service to kind of a larger thing and I very rarely feel that my own idea is the larger thing. So I do write. I've written a number of plays, um, and I've I, I write short stories kind of for myself, but usually only for other. Like I'll I write them as gifts for other people. Sometimes I write them because I'm like, oh, this is some this is in so and so's voice. And right now I'm starting to work with a sound designer friend to maybe like make a a audio project of some of these stories etc but unless it feels like a gift or a service thing I'm kind of like who cares I love that (laughs) that you write them as gifts yeah it's hard for me to finish anything otherwise Um, I'm very very audience focused I mean one of my earlier writing jobs that I did to make money was speech writing and that Mm. was a really uh, great 
got a kind of perfect exemplification of this because you're writing for a specific person, for a specific date, for a specific audience, for a specific like line of show. I mean, it's it's what kind of speech writing? I worked for and this. This was just a completely random thing, but I worked for um, the City University of New York. So I wrote a lot of speeches for ribbon cuttings, press conferences. <laughs> I wrote when it would be graduation season. I would write like. 10 commencement addresses per year which was <laughs> wild I, I wrote a couple of keynote addresses for I academic people had to write those things themselves no come on guys <laughs> a thing I have learned as a like freelance writer is that all the things you think people are doing themselves someone else probably an intern <laughs> frequently like people don't tweet themselves people don't do people don't do their own talking points they just don't have time well, that's great that you've been able to turn that into some of your day job work, though. Yeah, it Since was just you a... enjoy it, and it's something you have skill at, you know? I feel deeply underqualified for it, but I've just kind of fallen into it, and um, I don't know that I enjoy it as much as I... It's, it's problem-solving, you know? Yeah. And that's cool. And that is a lot of what I like about new play development also. It's you sort of see, like, ah, oh, this thing wants to be this... Here's the here's the gap. What are some ideas? Like, let me my my dramaturgy process is usually that I'll say like I see this issue. I don't know how to solve it. You could solve it a million ways. You could do this. 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 I just kind of spin and say whatever is helpful, use it. And it's really fun to see how and if that stuff gets implemented. And that's a really cool part of being um, of being part of the new play development process. And then you're helping now, my dear classmates, with um, Arts and the Armed Forces. Yes. You're helping them with their first inaugural playwriting competition. Yeah, it's been so intimidating and so fun. I saw your post on Facebook that you're about to finally announce the winner. And Dude. For yeah. those who don't know, it's it's a playwriting competition for veterans. Veterans or people currently serving. Okay. Or in uh, military academies, which okay. we didn't we don't really get those because they're busy. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's been pretty incredible. And the, anytime you do something for the first time, I mean, you know this. Making a podcast, everything is an invention. So, what to call it, like what to, how to write the rules, how, like, the evaluation process, like, how do you even talk about what makes a good play? Like, yeah. what is a play? And a lot of the people who are submitting are first-time playwrights, so then right. it was, um, then I was like, well, we need to provide some resources on our website or whatever for them, and then you start to think about, like, well, if you'd never even heard of what a play was... Yeah, what would how, you say? How would you define it? So it's these great basic, basic questions. Hmm. And moving forward, now we'll get to refine, now that all the sort of templates are written and created. But the birth of something new is really cool. So I was deeply, I was super freaked out and, um, <laughs> and really happy to get to be a part of this birthing thing. It's been nine months, so... <laughs> Um, but yeah, we're going to announce, we're going to announce it on Tuesday, May 1st. Okay. 
I don't know who the winner is going to be. Oh. Mm, it's not just an announcement. It hasn't been decided yet. Um, okay. Yeah, it's all very secret. And then I know that there's there's like a monetary prize. There, is there like a reading or something too? Yeah, there is a $10,000 prize, which is not nothing. Mm-mm. And then there is an ATAF, Arts and the Armed Forces, produced reading of the play we're still ironing out the details of exactly how and where that's going to be um anyone listening like check our website (laughs) but um it's going to be cast with professional actors and ataf tends to use as you know like unbelievably professional fancy like amazing people so i think that's going to be really exciting to the writer and um we'll see what the rehearsal process is the 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 reading won't be for a while, so the writer will hopefully have some time to work on, develop the play, maybe in consultation with um, Susan Larry Parks, who is our final judge. We'll see how oh, it all nice. kind of shakes out. But the plays that were submitted were really amazing. Um, and just the life stories of everyone. It, it was it, I, I'm a reader for a, a number of submission processes and awards and this has felt fundamentally different in just that um a lot of professional playwrights submitting is their job the way auditioning is our job so it's as if like there was a casting call for there was just a one-time casting call for people who happen to be missing a limb you know not that being a veteran or is missing a limb but a very specific or people who like had a medical degree or something. Right, right. And so they were like, oh my God, they're finally asking for me. This is my time. And so the way they would show up in the audition room is so much more loaded and personal. Um, and it feels really daunting and cool to be gifted with all of those like hearts, you know? That's so exciting. It's, it's so really great. Involved. I'm, I'm interested to see how it goes and where it ends up. Me too. Um, <laughs> me too. Yeah, it's interesting, like, reading a play, and you said you got to be involved with a number of those different submission processes. It's a skill, for sure. You've definitely cultivated this whole side of yourself. Like, it, I know for me, like, sometimes I might read a play the first time and I don't necessarily get the tone of it. Or I don't, like, I need to spend more time with it. Or I need to think about it for a while. And, like, one of my best friends, Lori, who's now the artistic director of the New Harmony Project, like, has done so many, um, has been a part of the submission process for a long, long time. And I, you know, reading one section of a play that they send in for submission and stuff like that, it's just, you. I would just be so worried about missing something. That's you know? always the fear, for sure. Like, what if that was the one and I just didn't get it the first time? Well, the thing is, there is no the one, you know? Like, <laughs> no, that, that, but that is the other, that's the thing that when you read so much, you right. kind of... And, that, and prizes are, you know, faulty in that way. Oh my God, of course. Because it's exciting to reward someone, but there, you know... There will always be people Oscars that you miss. Sense. <laughs> oh my God. No, the thing, the thing that's ironic is that I actually hate awards. I think they're like wrongheaded and stupid because they try to make something codified that is uncodifiable. Mm-hmm. However, when I'm working with these processes, I try not to think of them as like winning prize. I try to think of it as like an opportunity to again, give the gift of recognition. The way I'm thinking about it for this particular award is like, 
while there are so many writers and plays that would have been gloriously, justifiably um, moved forward and recognized by this award, we get the opportunity to like change someone's life. And that's incredible. And no, we can't change everyone's life, but such is the nature. You know, you can't marry everyone. Like anytime there is an opportunity... <laughs> Some yeah. people miss some people miss it, but like right. But is that it's better to give somebody the chance than nobody? Yeah, I mean, like, w- should we get rid of organ transplants because not everyone gets the heart? <laughs> you know, um, that said, it's really devastating to see someone fall down on the list of like you know that they need a donor too. So it's it's agonizing. But um, I still think it's a really, really worthy endeavor. In terms of missing something, in, the, in most of the playwriting things that I read for, I've become less precious about that because I've seen things come across my desk in so many different capacities and through so many different vehicles and forms that I sort of feel like there's a right fit, you know? Like, I- I'm a reader for the rattlestick and like, not every play is right for the rattlestick, but mm-hmm. it would be right for like seven other theaters. And if it's really good, it's going to eventually not again, good is a bad word too, but like someone will just the right person and the right fit and the right moment need to find it with arts and the armed forces and the bridge award. It's a little bit trickier because this is so specific and there aren't a lot of opportunities for this particular community, but I'm hoping that by offering this one, we're getting people kind of motored to think of themselves in this way and submit to other things and claim their artistry. I'm getting feedback from a lot of the submitting writers that that's happening. Um, they're like, I, I'm a writer, but I've, I've never written a play before, but through writing for this, even though I didn't win, I've awakened this new passion for myself and I'm gonna keep going. That's wonderful. It's so nice. <laughs> Shifting gears. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything that you've learned along the way about auditioning that's, um, is there any way that you've changed the way you approach it or things that you feel like you've figured out or let go of? Yes. Um, and this may, I'm like, any, anyone listening, take this with a massive grain of salt because I don't know that this is good advice. Um, and I don't audition that much actually. Um, However, I, I, I'm, coming from, I'm coming from an audition today, which was like one of the more high profile, I mean, whatever. <laughs> it was like a bigger deal audition than I frequently have. Uh-huh. And um, it was like 11 pages of straight TV text and, <laughs> you know. Um, and the way I used to go into auditions was very, like, I think young person female, charmy, hungry, and eager. And um, I go in with less adrenaline now. And what I, my goal really is pretty, pretty low bar. It's if I'm able to feel in the room like an actor and like a human being, that's a, that's a win for me. Like that's all I'm really aiming because I've come out of so many auditions being like, what did I just do? I understand that. Like, what was that? And so 
I walk in now and I sort of think, even if it's just the casting director, I try to be like, well, what would I be like on the first day of rehearsal? Like, how would I talk to you? What questions would I actually ask? How would I respond to whatever you're saying to me? Like, let me, I, I think that the way that we audition actors in America, Europe is not like this, and I think it shows in the work, um, is so like dog and pony show. And we train actors to be so endlessly grateful. Mm -hmm. And like that much gratitude is not healthy for our creation. <laughs> like it's, it's. It just puts you at a disadvantage. Like it teaches you to be. makes the power structure so much more extreme. And it teaches you to be ingratiating. And that's not yeah. useful. Like actually yeah. the actor should be protecting their own character, their own integrity, mm -hmm. their own values of what they're doing. No, and fighting what, for what's important to them. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that the person on the other side of the table has all the right answers. And I've been an audition reader enough, and I've been an audition reader a lot, to see people come into the room, do like extraordinary stuff. I'm like, that's, that's incredible talent and incredible rigor and work and they walk out and the team for whatever reason maybe they're hungry maybe it's something about like the way that person looks maybe it's who they saw right before whatever they kind of go yeah i don't know i thought she was boring and and it's maddening and <laughs> heartbreaking to sit there as the person in the chair being like you guys are so you're so wrong and also sometimes <laughs> someone will come in and be like awful and they'll be like I liked her you know what <laughs> and yeah yeah so I really I've I've realized that whether or not you like get get it or whether or not they're like great job is not the right the validation metric is is meaningless well that's what when you talk about the baseline of wanting to feel like an actor and like a human being very important sometimes I feel like it's more difficult than others because they're not behaving like human beings. Absolutely. And like, either they're completely silent and they're not engaging in the like 5% small talk, which can make you feel so much more comfortable and like a person. Have you auditioned or, for British directors? I mean, I'm sure I have in the past, but... The first couple of jobs I that I... The first couple of jobs that I got, and I got a couple of like really big crazy jobs when I was coming out of school and then like didn't work forever but they were four British directors and they have a different and I've been an audition reader for them they have a different way that they do it which is you come into the room and you immediately go and like sit down at the table with them and you just chat for a while not about the play like maybe about the play but about like current events or like how's it going or tell me about yourself or whatever right. and then they're always like did you get a chance to read the play and you're like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I did. And they're like, all right, well, we're just going to look at... And it's so casual. And usually they're a reader. Either they read with you or they have the audition readers like get up and play. It's a work session. That sounds lovely. It's amazing. <laughs> and it is so much easier to... They, they lay the groundwork for you to be a human being. And it's so helpful. But I, I totally agree, like... Many people don't do that. So what I've started to try to do is when they don't, to do it myself. Um, but like I think this audition today, even I'm sure I won't get it, but the casting director is just a total gem and she's a great reader. 
And I audition, I, I audition entirely based on how good the reader is. Um, and that's a thing that I still haven't solved. Right. But, you know, but I have learned, I, I have learned that the sense of um, I won or I lost based on an audition is so useless. And the only thing I can do is is try to satisfy myself on some like very low I think that's so very smart. low basis. <laughs> now I'm just thinking over the past. What have you I mean, what have you learned? <laughs> I I mean I'm not auditioning right now because I'm working this day job. I'm kind of taking a break. But I think it's something similar. I don't know if I've exactly accomplished it, but it's really hard. Yeah, trying not to there was a long time there right out of school where I would go in like Big smile, trying to like <laughs> make them like me or sell oh. something. Like in the moments around the acting, when the acting is the most important part, like that I somehow had to be something. God, what a nightmare! I don't know, <laughs> marketable or what they were expecting. I think though there there is that terrible and so so the alien and the enemy of art to try to please right yeah because the most exciting thing always happens when someone comes in and and surprises you that's a good way to put it to try to please oh and i don't know if male actors feel this i'm sure they do but just even saying the phrase try to please it's like that's something that's forced on women it's so female in everyday life their entire lives so to have it magnified by the audition process is kind of terrifying and also just like I mean I there is no universe in which men spend as much time thinking about what to wear yeah or like and if how that's to do their gonna hair. get them or not get them the part yeah but I think um I the, to be completely generalizing and horrible the <laughs> the men that I know, I know a lot more like guys who think of auditions like sports, hmm. like booked it, nailed it. You know, like there's a sense of like, I crushed it. I, I've never heard a, a female come out of an audition and be like, crushed it, you know? <laughs> but I know bros who do that all the time. And there's a lot of guys who get into acting because they got like injured on the, the hockey sports, team right, right. and they get a lot of the same things out of it they get the sense of like teamwork but also individualism and like working towards a goal and like that kinetic body thing and right going on a ride and practicing 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 but then the performance being the game being all that really counts I think there's a lot of sports and performance that go together but what I've found for me is that I it's so much more useful to think of it like yoga like I'm I'm doing the setup I'm like doing my handstand today okay I fell out of it well I still did it <laughs> I still did it and like I'll try again tomorrow and it isn't about like did I get it or did I not you know right. like oh I love that oh what a nightmare I mean I I do, I am not particularly ritualistic, but I do a handstand every day um, <laughs> in the morning and at night. <laughs> and I do, and I'm, I still, I can do it like away from the wall for like 10 seconds, if that. Um, and I've been doing this for like 
six years. That's um, great. <laughs> it's slow. No, but that's how you get better at something. It's well, like the slow repetition. And it's also kind of a check-in. Like there will be some days where yeah, I'm like, whoa, how you're, how you're feeling. my balance is super off. But if that were an audition and I was like, I, I, I law, I, I couldn't do it. Ugh. That would be really, um, a, like another magical thinking type thing. Like, you are separating into good and bad, like the kingdom of heaven or hell. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think men are trained to have other bad habits about auditioning. Yeah, we all have our own baggage. Mm. <laughs> it's a terrible process. Um, this sounds like kind of a similar question, but I don't mean it to be. Is, um, are there any lessons you've learned the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Not really, doesn't have to be related to auditioning in any way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think what I've learned, like the things that I'm proudest of are really relationships that I've built and the surprising ways that those come back to you. And, and this is a lesson that I keep relearning over and over. I'm not a very goal-oriented person. I'm not very like... You know, I don't vision board or whatever, but I, I, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with vision boarding, California. Um, I, I like to believe, and I've found mostly to be true, that the greatest things, the greatest gifts that happen are things I never would have anticipated, and that I, that I am not good enough at imagining or planning to, to try to control the like delights that will surprise me like I um and and just the invest in people long term um I recently I got a call kind of out of the blue to help cast a film um and I do a lot of people call me for like hey I'm trying to fill this part do you have any ideas and I do a lot of that and it's really fun and it's another like puzzle solving, yeah. brainstorming. You could try this or you could try well, this. You're or you also could just this. involved with so many different groups and yeah. And I also, through all your new play work and everything, like you just know a lot of people. And I also think great. of it as sort of a service professional type thing. I'm good at matchmaking. Mm -hmm. But I got the I got a call from a, a film guy that I met maybe five years ago. He was working on something I was shooting with Nick Choksi actually. <laughs> um this like funny little two-hander film about a date gone wrong. Um, <laughs> and I've helped him with some projects over the years. And he called me and was like, I'm doing this movie. Do you want to be an official like casting person on it? And I was like, sure. And it was so unexpected and so fun. And someone forwarded me an email the... Um, the other day being like, you're on IMDb as a casting person. And I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. But over the course I of that, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I got to, like, there was, um, there's a, a young woman named Rachel Sacknoff, who I've seen in a bunch of stuff. I've worked with her briefly. We're not like good friends. She's lovely, but we're not like close. I just think she's so special and so talented she works a lot with a writer named will arbery who i also just 
is think is a genius and they're an amazing collaboration and there was a role in this movie I was helping to cast 27 parts and I was like and Rachel doesn't I mean maybe things have changed but like she came to New York from Northwestern with no agent or grounding or like credits or whatever and I was able to like get her a job on this movie who and Beth Marvel is starring in it and and like Reed Bernie and all these cool people it's really fun (laughs) um and it's fine you know whatever but like I was able to like get her a no audition offer to do this thing that I think they are lucky to have her for and I was like wow how incredible to be in a position yeah to do that that always feels wonderful it felt so good and um those are the most rewarding moments I'm fine like when I'm I'm just I've been chatting with a writer about something and then I like see their pitch that they've just sold and they like incorporated a scene we spitballed about like it's so amazing um and I think the lesson is just that you don't you just don't know how those things are gonna happen And when I try to strategize, it's always a disaster. <laughs> that is a good lesson. Yes. I mean, for me, for, for other people, it's really different. So you No, know, I'm such a planner that that's one thing about being an actor that drives me crazy. But it's, you know, it's probably why I chose it in a way. Yeah, the other side, yeah. the like, negative space. It's, probably good for me to not be able to plan but it feels excruciating (laughs) I know how how one of those things it's so the lack of agency and the lack of control as an actor is like so painful for so many of my dearest and most talented friends I really kind of like it because I just get to I I like the feeling of surrender and the feeling of being like great you do like you take care of it not my job you know <laughs> like I, I I find that really maybe it is a little bit like I am the child of two people who like run things for a living and that is terrifying and exhausting to me so I, I want to go in the other direction and be like powerless <laughs> Let the universe take care of it. Please. Yeah. I mean, it won't, obviously, but like, who knows? Do you have any artistic mentors that have become important to you over hmm. your career? Well, I mean, I, I always say that my... Brian Murtis is one of the most inspiring, uh, important to my sense of, again, like chaos and powerlessness and who knows yeah. in art... I don't know that, I mean, I've worked with him a few times across different mediums. We're not close. I'm just obsessed with him. Um, <laughs> As am I. Oh, totally obsessed. I would do anything he says, and I have. Um, <laughs> most of my important, like, long-term things, I wouldn't call mentorships exactly, but my long-term collaborators have been mm-hmm. incredibly important to me. Yeah. Um, um, and a lot of those have been writers. I mean, I, I, I go back to working with a lot of the same people over and over, and it's just incredible to watch their careers ascend and to get to be sometimes a direct part of it and sometimes just kind of on the sidelines being like, yay! <laughs> but yeah, those, uh, like, I'm, I'm a member of a couple of different companies, and 
it's so hard to be all alone in the expanse of New York. So I'm, yeah. I'm really grateful for, for those. Yeah. Um, let me see how long I've kept you. Oh my gosh. Are there any specific things that I haven't touched on that you really wanted to talk about? Oh gosh. Again, things you're really excited about right now. There's no wrong answer to that. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I mean, I, there's, this is two different, two different things, but, um, something that I think is important, just like navel gaze leave for me is that I've had a lot of issues with my voice over my career. Like, um, and like make, medical issues or more like co- I think confidence issues. I or? think both actually. Yeah. I mean, um, I before I was interested in, in being an actor, I was this. I was a little singer. Um, I was. I knew the entire canon of Sondheim by the time I was like eight. <laughs> Seriously, I could still probably. I won't. I won't do it. Um, uh, and then. I got a couple of like uh, cysts on my vocal cords at a certain point, which I didn't treat for a long time because I'm bad at self-care. And I was like, oh, it'll probably go away. And it's just been really interesting to me to... I'm probably in as good vocal health right now as I will be for the rest of my life and career. And that means that I'm working with a compromised instrument. It's better than it was. But it was a really interesting thing for me to kind of lose the voice that I once had, which was this very, like, bright, high, like, people would say that I should do, like, Disney voiceovers or whatever. That's gone. Hmm. And the way that that has changed my, like, my identity, both internally and also my type, I think, for acting has been really interesting. When do you think that change was a really gradual thing or it was do you remember like a yeah change I mean I remember just being like wow I can't sing anymore hmm. um I I'm reaching for or even like speaking I'm re- I'm reaching for certain like melody notes that aren't there and I thought it would get better and it is the thing where like we all have different places in our bodies that manifest difficulty like yeah. some people when they're upset or stressed or whatever like they have indigestion or headaches or mine has always been my voice Mm. and I don't think I I think there is probably some like metaphor there um and it got really bad while I was in like a tricky relationship and you know but there were actual cysts (laughs) which needed to be taken away um, and then imaginary. it wasn't, it was deeply real and no one, and it wasn't a like polyp or node thing. It was just like the body, the body's crazy. The body just decided to be like, we're going to put some extra fluid in this little sack here. And the <laughs> vocal cords are so delicate and precious and mysterious. And who kind of knows why they do what they do. They're both like very medical and very mystical. So that whole odyssey through realizing that something is like fundamentally different about your instrument and mourning the loss of that and also kind of like trying to see how it can newly inform you has been really I'm still on the path of it but it's been really interesting like I'm super nervous to hear this because I'm gonna be like oh my god that's what I sound like now ah 
And I'm sure I don't sound that fundamentally different to other people, but the it, it's right. It's well, crazy to, you, it's to me. Like one of the most intimate things is like what your voice is doing. Yeah, yeah, for and sure. And I'm sure. I mean, the feeling like you've lost the ability to sing. I'm sure is a whole different thing. That's like a whole like specific. It's loss. it's really hard. I can I I'm getting some of it back, and like that's one of my long term. Yeah. Like the dark side for me would be the futility of it. Would be like, well, it's gone. It's lost. Why bother? But in fact, people cope with huge difficulties, medical and otherwise, and they they restore. I remember. Um, David Cottle, our mutual friend, mm-hmm. who has been beautifully featured on this podcast, um, wrote a play that I was going to be in and then I had to get out of for a scheduling re- reason called Downward Facing Debbie, uh-huh. which was about a yoga class. And there was a guy in the cast of it who had been the person in that um, Spider-Man accident. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Whose entire body had been like completely decimated he'd been paralyzed oh my god and it was wrenching and he was in this cast I went to the first couple of rehearsals and he was sitting next to me like looking like the bastion of health in a play about yoga and he was almost I mean he seemed to be completely recovered and so much of it was that he had had all of this amazing positive energy and like belief and he was sending all of that to his cells. And I mean, we are our, like our bodies, we're doing it. Like even if our, our, we're not in, consciously in charge of our immune systems, like no one else is controlling that. It's, it's our ecosystem. The human you know? body. <laughs> the human body is nuts. Um, so that's a thing that is just has been interesting to me and I think we all have some version of that no and it's something that we're all going to have to deal with as we age that alone will change our instruments in certain ways yeah but it's I too like I haven't had medical issues but the voice for me has always been a hang-up huh in undergrad and then at Juilliard where teachers were just always writing me about it I had to work super hard that my voice just wasn't big I had to always you know warm up for an hour, that two hours. That is so wild People to me. People always just giving me shit about it. And so doing the podcast has actually been strangely therapeutic to have people tell me over and over that they're like, I love your voice. Your voice is so calming. It's so soothing. It's perfect for like to have in my headphones. And I'm just like, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me. Take that, teachers. <laughs> Not that I didn't know. Not that I didn't need the things that they were trying to teach me, but at the time it was so um, sensitive for me to hear that it was like arrows in my heart. It's such an intimate. (laughs) It's such an intimate thing. I mean, it's uh, it's how the internal becomes external, right? I mean, but I that's crazy for me to hear because back going back to school. I have always felt about you, and forgive me if, if I've said this before, but podcast listeners, there was a there was a performance that Leah Walsh did that I saw when when I was like, I don't know, 20 years old, that I will be forever changed by, which was a production of um, Ellen McLaughlin's incredible adaptation of Iphigenia and Other Daughters. And Leah played Chrysothemis, which 
is the the kind of unseen, unsung daughter in the traditional Greek myth that Ellen McLaughlin has put at the front and center as um, like um, as as the example of the unsung, unseen woman who keeps the clocks wound, and it is the kind of like grounded cynic of the world <laughs> and I will never forget you just standing on that stage like I think the place started with you sweeping in silence Maybe. for a long time I, that I'm saying I think but I know it second did second year first year I yeah no it was early and <laughs> you had this quality the way that you relate to the ground is so majestic and um rare and it, the first line that you spoke, it felt like sound was just channeling up through the earth, through your feet, and like coming unbidden out into the world. And I was like, there's just a purity of ease and communication and channel is the best word that I can use. And I was like, that is really, that's really hard for me. I'm a kind of, air, I, I, I live in air and up. And find, finding my feet was always really hard for me. You are so sweet to say that because to, from all the impressions I've ever gotten from voice teachers, I would never think anyone would say that about me. I remember it really feeling like, oh, <laughs> this is this is what I'm after. Mm. I might not be able to do like that. That might not be what I can do, but God damn it, like that is oh. That's so sweet of you. So I I have always thought of your voice as being this kind of like anchored pure elemental force and then we wound up to be two halves of the same person it's true it's true. anna played iphigenia in i don't what was your section called in, ta, in taurus ta, taurus um in iphigenia in aulis but our yeah. we were part one the wars yes and then we did my fourth year at juilliard we did the greeks part three the gods mm. Yeah, I got war, you got God. Yeah. <laughs> you were sacrificed. That's right. I was found again. Great, Leah. Yeah, no, it was just special. rub it in. It was special that we got to play the same part. Yeah, it was really amazing. In a Brian Murdy's play. And I was like, this has always been my dream to grow up <sighs> into Leah Walsh. Thank God. Um, so I'm pregnant. What? <laughs> I'm acting surprised, but I knew, and I'm you so knew. glad we get to talk about yeah. it. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! This is the best honor to be a part of the first. <laughs> also, the podcast also our announcement. Podcast announcement. <laughs> Leah Walsh is making a new human inside Speaking herself. Of crazy things the human body can do. So insane. Insane. I have a human being growing inside me right like, now. Like there is nothing more sci-fi. Than pregnancy and birth. <laughs> like um, Frankie and I are having a baby in August, <laughs> so I'm a little over halfway there. You all know I've talked about it with so many people who have had kids. I've obviously made it clear <laughs> I wanted kids, so <laughs> I'm excited that we're finally doing it. Uh, so I'm gonna learn what that's like to yeah. be a parent and attempt to continue my creative and to keep from going to the dark side as yeah. an artist even I more. Mean, I'm, I'm learning from. All the other wonderful people have done it, so. There is a rich tradition. It's true. There is. It always makes me hopeful when I see people pulling it off. It can be done. I mean, my my childhood best friend is a director living in New Orleans who just had a baby uh, several months ago. 
And like she went into rehearsal for a show like three weeks late. I mean, she's a superhero. She's a four <laughs> foot ten superhuman. But the things people are able, like this goes back to the body can do whatever. The things people are able to accomplish when they kind of decide that it's possible is amazing. Yeah. I was telling Frankie that I feel probably undeservedly calm about it. <laughs> and um, I told that to my brother this weekend. We went to see them and he was saying he thought it was probably because we like agonized over this decision for so long mm. that there's a relief in having made the decision yeah. and you can't go back now and it's decided you well know? it's great that you did all of your true. you did all of your anxiety in advance so you aren't doing it now like i think i'm the, sure it'll come at some point <laughs> well the thing that always kind of gets to me is when people do a lot of anxiety about something and then like in advance of it and then they do it and they keep anxiety about it and i'm like well you did that before <laughs> like if you were gonna do it now don't you might as well don't like pick a pick a moment you know yeah Pick a step and a stage. But I'm I'm super excited to meet your small person. Thank you. We're excited to. Whoever they whoever, may be. Whoever it may be. Um, okay. End pregnancy section. <laughs> um, so the two more ending questions. Yes. And then I will let you go home. Mm. I will release you. When you are feeling really uninspired or inhibited with those kinds of useless feelings... Um, are there any concrete things that you reach for again and again, like books you reread or music you listen to or stuff like that? Yes-ish. Um, I am a, there's a couple of things there. Uh, I am a like obsessive completionist with writers. So when I find a voice that I love, I'm like, well, now I must read everything you wrote. <laughs> and I find that finding a new person like that, finding a new uh, mental, philosophical, auditory voice to live inside, that really helps me. Um, and the excitement of knowing you get to read everything yes, you've done. The, yeah. Both the pressure, the like, oh, well, God damn it. Now, I'm, <laughs> now I know what the next like six months of my life is going to be. Um, and But there are a bunch of like required reading people that I do return to. I don't tend to reread books as much as look for the next one, but like, um, I'm obsessed with Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree. Um, Andrew Solomon's writing in general, I think he's an incredible... I will write that down. Oh my God. And I'll, like, if you cut the pregnancy section out, this will be less relevant. But um, <laughs> Far From the Tree is really an amazing book about... Um, about parenting, about parents who have children who are fundamentally different from them in some way. Mm. And I think it's really about the nature of identity, illness, otherness, um, and parent and love. And it's so beautiful. He also writes a lot about anxiety and depression. And um, he's an incredible writer and thinker. Uh, great at both the, the humane micro and the human macro, which is the thing that kind of like I'm always attracted to. Um, I'm also obsessed with Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for economics, even though he is, in fact, a psychologist. Hmm. Uh, he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. I go around talking about it all the time. So I go back, I like read his studies. I'm that geeky. He's amazing. <laughs> um, Maggie Nelson, Anthony Minghella. 
oh, who has a bunch of radio plays that I just mm. love so much. Um, Anne Carson. Um, there are just writers and and voices that I I that I find both invigorating and soothing. Um, and they're all pretty like they're 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 pretty bleak people. A lot of them. Um, like Maggie Nelson's *The Art of Cruelty* is a book that I love. And then the other thing I go to is that I, I have found to be really useful is memorization. Um, when I find myself getting uh, kind of futile or self-hating or anxious, I need to fill the space with a project. So sometimes I will be like, I'm going to write a fairy tale for so-and-so, or I'm going to I'm going to finish something so that I feel less like a lug. But um, I have found that putting long pieces of text into my body is really, really helpful and healing for me because I can sort of, one, it gives me a thing to return to right. and I own it. You know, if there will right. be, if the apocalypse happens tomorrow, I will not have any objects, but I will have the things that I have learned. And just sound and repetition and having a, like I'm walking yeah, down like the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also, I mean, like the the longest one that I think I've learned, I'm still sort of working on a Jonathan Safran Fort story called And There We Weren't So Quickly. But prose is harder than poetry. Yeah. There is a Bob Dylan prose poem called Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie that is probably like 10 minutes long <laughs> that I spend all of 2016 learning. I love that. And whenever I start to kind of spiral a little bit, I just sort of like go yeah. into the, and then there's a couple of pieces of text that I have that, that are useful to me. And they're also just reminders of like, Hey, I, I have this and I did that. And right. And you, I mean, that's a skill that you use constantly as an actor, but it's nice to use it for something that doesn't have any of that pressure associated with it. Yeah, and even when I'm learning, like, even when I'm doing a show and I'm, like, learning lines, and I sometimes I'll feel like it's an indulgence to learn something else because I'm like, Anna, if you're right. going to learn some space left. <laughs> but it's just a, it's a tool that I've found to be really... Uh, it's my, it's better it's a moving meditation it's yeah. a moving like a mental meditation and you really cannot be um when you are memorizing it forces you to go piece by piece and slow down yeah. you can't skim memorization you know right you either have it or you don't yeah and you have to go like you you you, you can't cheat it you can't jump it right so that's something is there anything that you've seen lately of any art form that you want to recommend? Mm. Um, I'm reading, I'm like most of the way through Elia Kazan's On Directing right now, mm -hmm. which I just sort of picked up. And it's not quite, it's not a book that he wrote. It's an editor going back and piecing together all of his notebooks and letters and all of his thinking about directing and these great... He, he directed everything. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that, like, he everything. directed All My Sons and um, uh, Tennessee Williams, Jesus Christ. Um, Cat on Hudson Roof. Cat on Hudson Roof, but also uh, not Glass Menagerie, but um, Vivian Lee, Jessica Tandy. 
Streetcar Named Desire. Streetcar Named Desire. <laughs> yes. He was Miller and Tennessee Williams' guru and go-to. And I didn't oh realize that that same person did like all of that work. And it is, and all my sons, he was the original. Like it's incredible to read his notes on these plays and to read the way that he thinks about direction. But again, it's, he's an amazing micro macro person. Everything is super personal. He's like obsessed with locating his own father and his own lovers and mother-in-law and himself in mm. all of these characters. And unless he can sort of figure out what his own personal like therapy type thing to work out is, he can't do the play. Right. At the same time, he's always really interested in what the social movement and the kind of larger metaphoric sweep is. And I, he's just amazing. And like getting to kind of immerse in that mind is so cool. And it's also making me want to go back and like revisit all of these works and like play all these parts right now. <laughs> and it's also refreshing how intensely seriously he takes his work. And I feel like and himself. And I feel like a lot of times it can be hard to feel permission to care that much. We're sort of in an irony Instagram age of like, hashtag sorry not sorry. And like, there is, it's all blood and guts and like, id for him. Um, so I'm really into that. I, this is a little bit of a cheat. I haven't seen it, but. My friend Leonanico Winkler has a play called Two Mile Hollow, which I have read and seen readings of, and I think it's the funniest play in the world. And it's <laughs> having a um it's having a like workshop production at Pipeline Theater, the women's project thing mm -hmm. that's happening through the end of this weekend, and I'm going on Saturday. Okay. And Morgan Gould, who is one of my like most treasured collaborators and a true comic genius, is directing it. And I just cannot wait to see it. And I know it's amazing, even though I can't endorse it yet, but <laughs> I will. You I will. Can. What else? Uh, I'm also reading Eleanor Roosevelt's like book called It's Up to the Women which is so funny um, because it's just thoughts about like what women should do during the depression. And I just, I, I just enjoy it for what she thinks about um, the things that young wives should know how to do. <laughs> she has a lot of instructions for you in starting a family. Oh, good. Every young, every young mother should know how to give an enema. <laughs> Swear to God, Leah. Swear to God. Um, so I'm having fun with that. There are a million things, but those are the three, those are the three that come immediately to mind. Well, Anna, thank you so much. This was magnificent. <laughs> I'm so happy we got to do this. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the compass podcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. 
I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.